So, Will. Yeah. The movie we're discussing today is based off of a novel set very close by to where we live in Asheville in North Carolina. So... I, like, during the opening voiceover, just wrote down, is this based on a book? Like, it was very clear to me from the drop. Oh, it is very clearly a movie based on a book. And the author of this book is one of the few Asheville celebrities. So, a few years ago, many years ago, my mom, as an NPR donor, got us uh, backstage passes to a recording of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. That really is just the coolest thing you've ever said. Like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I got backstage passes to the Wait, Wait recording. So they were recording in Asheville at the big theater there. And the guest was Charles Frazier, a man I had never heard of, who wrote a big book about Cold Mountain. And I was like, okay. Very much the least important part of it to me because backstage, I did get to meet Carl Castle. Oh, that's exciting. I guess this guy too. But Peter Sagal was very fun. Roxanne Roberts left, which was really upsetting. No, she's the best. But I did get, you know, hors d'oeuvres and drinks backstage with the people there. And so I have met this man who was apparently a celebrity-ish in the region. Um, and he is exactly the type of person who would write the book Cold Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Did he desert the Confederate army? Yeah, it's based off of his life story. He is 150 years old. Uh, No, he is just a old Southern man with white hair who's lived in Asheville his whole life. And the fact that they reference Zebulon Vance, who has a memorial in downtown Asheville that people are trying to get rid of as a Confederate general turned U.S. senator because that was a thing. Yeah, I've only visited Asheville once, but when I was there, I noticed that there's this big, heavily defaced memorial in the downtown area. Yeah, no one really likes Zebulon Vance anymore, even if it is a fun name to say. It's an incredible name. But I think people are trying to replace it with a um, memorial to enslaved peoples. I mean, that seems better. And correct, including... I remember the Asheville Citizen Times published an article who is a direct descendant of Zebulon Vance that was just like, get rid of that f***ing obelisk, you fools. I am descended from a bad man, which I really respect. Yeah, I appreciate that. So that'll probably go sometime soon, because despite being represented by Madison Cawthorn, Asheville is one of the most liberal places in the country. I was reading this incredible thing recently about how Madison Cawthorn, for like years before getting elected to Congress, was like a running joke in the Special Olympics community. Yeah, because he just lied. Right, he claimed that he had like almost gone to the Special Olympics, and all the actual like Special Olympics, ra- like, wheelchair racers were like, we've never heard of this guy, and the races that he claims to have done are incredibly non-competitive. And so he's been this, like, running joke there for years, and I appreciate knowing that. And he also claimed to have been accepted into, I think, West Point before his car accident, which was also just not true. Yeah, and he claimed to have been a small business owner at the time of the car accident, which was also not true. I am just still full of rage. Anyway... <laughs> Asheville, great place. Fully recommend visiting when it's safe to do so. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Still a good show. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Still a good show. Would love to see that recorded again live at, I would assume, Wolf Trap. It seems to be the place they go in DC. 
Yeah, last time I was there, the guest was James Comey. Oh, boy. Trying to shill his book, I'm sure. Something like that. The, what was the book called? A Higher Loyalty. Ah, yes. The, and the fact that they made that into a TV show continues to baffle me to this day. Featuring some cast overlap with this movie because Brendan Gleeson played Donald Trump in it. Oh, right. Well, I think we should dive in and discuss this movie because there is, for a such a big movie... We did have to stretch the points a little bit. Which gives us lots of time to talk about its sprawling cast, like Emily Deschanel in a one-scene role. Why was Bones there? She She was looking for Bones! (laughs) She walked out and I just wrote in my notes, Bones? Because we decided ahead of time you would be in charge of the points for this movie. I didn't take a lot of notes on romance. My notes are mostly me writing actors' names with question marks after them. Yeah, I had to do my best. But let's start the show. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining one of the least important questions facing our world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are Nicole Kidman's lips so soft that you would fight for five years to get back to them after one kiss? It's a really good kiss. It's a very good kiss. But also, are these people dateable or likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if it's, like, kind of the main plot, but never actually happens that much because they're separate, we'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at the 2003 Civil War romantic epic Cold Mountain, written and directed by Anthony Minghella, based on the National Book Award-winning novel by Charles Fraser. A second reinterpretation of Homer's Odyssey set in the American South that we have covered. Also with music produced by T-Bone Burnett, who produced the soundtrack of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There are some songs that are definitely in both. Yeah. I will say, the music was my favorite part of this movie. Yes. Uh, no. My favorite part of this movie is Renee Zellweger just doing weird work. (laughs) I'm a sucker for period music, especially 19th century period music. So anytime people were singing, and that includes like the singing in church, which I thought was really cool, or like when Brendan Gleeson and Jack White have their band going, anytime that was going on, I was like, maybe I love this movie. And then the music would stop and I'd be like, no, it's just like kind of fine. Yeah, it was a very fine movie. It overstayed its welcome. There were like three scenes that could easily just be cut because they serve very little purpose. I think... Cold Mountain feels like exactly what it is, which is a big awards play from Miramax in the early 2000s, where during that window, every year, Miramax is going to put out a couple of high-profile awards plays, usually period pieces, and they are going to be, like, full of stars with, like, the might of the, like, Harvey Weinstein awards machine behind them to try to muscle their way into Oscar season. And Cold Mountain is very much set up like that. It's writer and director Anthony Minghella had won Best Director for The English Patient, which is also a Miramax film, and he had gotten screenplay nominations for The English Patient and The Talented Mr. Ripley. Now he's coming back doing another big period romance. He's got big stars associated. (laughs) So many stars. But the movie gets a couple of big Oscar nominations, but it doesn't get the Best Picture nomination that I think it's clearly being set up for. And it's a, a movie that people, for the most part, say like, yeah, it's good, but it feels like it was supposed to be great. It is a movie that somehow is a great epic, but is just an okay movie. Yeah. It feels a little bit like a post-Titanic movie in that it is this, like, sweeping historical romance about these, like, doomed lovers. You're right, there's the Odyssey element to it, too. At least with Titanic, you get to see them together 
for more than 20 minutes. Well, Titanic is a perfect movie, so <laughs> anything is going to pale in comparison. Yeah. The thing is, they have a lot of chemistry together. Yeah. So it's kind of annoying that you don't get more of them together. So our main performers in this are Nicole Kidman and Jude Law. And yeah, they are like really compelling when they're on screen together. We mentioned that first big kiss they have before he goes off to war. And it's like a heck of a kiss. It's incredible. It's a great kiss. And both of them are doing pretty decent accent work. In yeah. a surprise turn of events for Nicole Kidman. I don't think she sounded Australian even once in this. Yeah, no, I think the accent work is fine in this movie. I had no real objections. Right. The biggest one that felt weird to me wasn't because it was bad. It was just strange to see Philip Seymour Hoffman with that voice. It's also just strange to watch Renee Zellweger speak that way. Not the accent, just the way she talks. is <laughs> so odd. Look, Ruby Tuesday is a character under herself. <laughs> She truly walked out and said her name was Ruby Thews, and I actually thought she said Ruby Tuesday. The wild thing is that I also thought she said Ruby Tuesday and spent the rest of the movie just, like, hoping she would repeat her name. Because I was like, it can't be Ruby Tuesday. I had to Google it to see, and it's Thews. But it also, you watch Archer, right? I have seen a lot of Archer, but I don't watch it regularly. Have you? Do you remember the German assassins? I don't know. Who are like, there's a pregnant, or a woman who is pretending to be pregnant. She keeps asking to be taken to Ruby Twos. Like, not Ruby Tuesday. She always says just Ruby Twos. So that's all I could hear in my head the whole time they were talking about Ruby. I just think about this movie and I just remember whole characters that I had forgotten. Like, yeah. all of a sudden I just remembered the whole plot line about Sarah. Well, I mean, I think that kind of speaks to the sort of Homeric element of it, that it is a lot of, especially on the Jude Law side of things, wandering from encounter to encounter and just like spending some time with Natalie Portman and spending some time with Philip Seymour Hoffman. This would definitely be made as a prestige HBO miniseries. Oh yeah, there's no way this would just be a movie now. Because it is so episodic in nature already. Like, you have the Philip Seymour Hoffman episode. You have the Natalie Portman episode. With Union Soldier Killian Murphy. Right. So you have built-in, you know, hour-long stories that do connect enough for the movie. But I think, I mean, I don't want to see it adapted because it's not great. (laughs) But I feel like it could be made better as a miniseries, just by virtue of being longer, but giving you more breaks. Because I did take a couple breaks during this movie, because I was losing interest and had to recenter. Sure. I did not take any breaks, but I do think that it's probably better suited to a miniseries. But there's not the same infrastructure for miniseries in 2003 that there is today. Right. We also don't need any more stories about Confederate soldiers. Yeah. I mean, that, I think, is where this movie is a little tricky, too, in that... It is trying to walk a very fine line with regards to the Confederacy, where it's about a Confederate soldier, but it's about a Confederate deserter who hadn't wanted that much to go to war, but did because of, like, social pressure, and it's, like, poor white people from the mountains where there's not a lot of enslaved people, so they don't feel as strong a connection to that one. But at the end of the day, we're still talking about, like, Confederate soldiers, and we're still being asked to see Confederate soldiers as the main victims of the Battle of the Crater at the start of the movie, which is a wild take. Also, 
the fact that the only Union soldiers in this show up, attempt to rape Natalie Portman, and kill her baby. Yeah. Like, they're such monsters. Do you know anything about the Battle of the Crater? I read about it yeah, <laughs> after so watching this movie, the movie. This movie starts off with a depiction of this battle as part of the Siege of Petersburg, where the U.S. Army dug tunnels under rebel lines and put a bunch of gunpowder there, and then blew up the gunpowder to blow up the rebel lines. Then the army rushes in to attack him. Kind of a cool idea. But the explosion didn't go the way they had wanted, and so it created this crater with steep walls. So when the army rushed in, they then couldn't get over the walls to attack the rebel defenses, and they're just getting shot. And the thing that, if you look for it in this movie, you can kind of see it, but no attention is drawn to it, is the fact that the center of the U.S. Army lines at the crater was a division of United States colored troops. So those are black soldiers fighting for the U.S. Army. And they charge forward. They can't get over the wall of the crater, and they're trapped down there. And the rebel soldiers around the rim are just picking them off like fish in a barrel, even as they tried to surrender. And so it's just an absolute massacre of black soldiers, in part because Confederate policy was not to accept the surrender of black soldiers, because the official Confederate policy was that black soldiers constituted a slave rebellion, not legitimate enemy combatants. It's such a bad choice. And that's my thing where, like, you know, you could have picked any battle. But to do the Battle of the Crater, and, like, again, yes, we see the piles of dead Union soldiers. But the thing we're supposed to latch onto is, like, wow, it's a bummer that Jude Law got injured here. I There's so many losses for the Confederacy. Why would you choose a victory? I think the movie is trying to be anti-war in general. And it, I mean, it did have big boom, big crater go boom which is, you know, catnip for the filmmakers. It's kind of cool. But the main point of this movie is that pretty much anyone who wants to be a soldier is a bad person and dies. Yeah. Which is, you know, valid being anti-war. It's just by choosing to focus on Confederates, you're still sympathizing with, you know, a terrible cause. You've made white Southerners the victims of the Civil War. Right. But there are... A lot of really villainous Confederates, too. In the movie, yeah. In I the mean, movie. It's Ray Winstone as Teague is the biggest one. Right. It's definitely trying to be like, there's good and bad on both sides, but you don't see any good on the Union. You only see the good and bad on the Confederate side. Right. The movie makes the assumption that the viewer already knows the good on the right. Union side. Yeah. Which is a dangerous assumption, given something we talked about before the episode, the fact that you know, over the past century, depictions of the Civil War in film have leaned towards pro-Confederate depictions. Since the beginning. <laughs> Since Birth of a Nation. Right. It's wild, because, like, the general, the Buster Keaton film that's on the AFI 100 is about Confederate soldiers. And I was reading about it, and at the time, part of it was because there was guilt in the North for treating the South so poorly. And treating the South so poorly usually was framed as, during Reconstruction, the U.S. Army occupied and made sure black people had political rights. Right. And a lot of whites in the North felt guilty about it, because the North was also incredibly racist. So I kind of get the mindset there, but it was just so such an insidious way of the lost cause taking over American media from so early on. And that notion that white Southerners are the victims of the war is central to the Lost Cause narrative. Right. And it's just, clearly they are not. 
Right. It's just so blatantly obvious that they are not the victims. So it's a tricky movie because, like I said, I do think there are moments that really work. For me, it's especially the music. Some of the characters are pretty compelling. But especially because it was front-loaded with the crater and recruiting people for the rebel army, front-loading it with that made it harder for me to get into the movie. I did enjoy... I really liked Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in this movie. He's a fascinating character. And my favorite parts, unsurprisingly, are like the gal pals palling around the farm. I love Yeah, they're great. It was I think just... Nicole Kidman is really great in this movie. She is. And I really enjoyed watching Nicole Kidman and Ruby Tuesday transform the farm. Yeah, they're just great doing that together. Like they're just having fun. I love the moment when Jude Law returns and Ruby Tuesday is clearly upset because she's worried that she will no longer be welcome on the farm and she will no longer have a place there. And the reaction by Jude Law is like, no, that's your home. Like, you get to decide whether or not I get to stay there. Right. She is very entrenched. Like, she has made this place her home. Yeah. And I love those kind of character moments. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I always, I do enjoy when people have fun. So the Christmas scene, after so, such a depressing movie, it was nice to see just like people dancing and celebrating Christmas. It's really lovely. And you got Jack White playing, like, mandolin. (laughs) Yeah. But there's just so much movie. And so much of it is just like, I want to have this celebrity show up, give a strong performance, and then disappear forever. The thing is, a lot of them aren't necessarily, like, celebrities at that point. Like, we mentioned Emily Deschanel. This is pre-Bones. I know. I'm not thinking about her, but, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman, he lasts longer than most. And then Natalie Portman, she's, like, peak Portman. At that this point. is in the middle of the Star Wars trilogy that she's in. And I'm trying to think of some of the others. You have Donald Sutherland and Brendan Gleeson. But to me, that's not like we're bringing in a celebrity to be our dad. It's like, yeah, Donald Sutherland I mean, is yeah, a name, but like kidding. no one's like, I'm a fiend for Donald Sutherland. Let's camp it's outside true. the theater. All I want to say is justice for the fairy girl. Yeah. Because uh, completely non sequitur, but I just saw it in my notes and I was like, what? <laughs> The movie just introduces this young woman who's running a ferry service and then shoots her two minutes later. Well, people in the movie shoot her. It's not the movie that (laughs) fires the gun. (laughs) The movie murdered her. (laughs) And I just, it's moments like that in this movie that would really catch me off guard. And I think that's getting to the movie's point about how, you know, the, the violence of the war affects everybody. Right. Even just this woman running her ferry service. Doing her best to survive. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think that's its main focus. Is It's mm-hmm. just about the violence of war. But I think the movie's failing is that it doesn't understand... You know, I think one of the more pernicious elements of the Lost Cause view of the Civil War is the idea that the war itself was a tragedy. The country would have been better off if they could have found a way to resolve these issues without a war. But the fact is, like, slavery was not going to end in this country without a war. And so if you view the Civil War purely as a tragedy, then effectively what you're doing is saying the sad deaths of white people are sadder than years of continued enslavement of African Americans. Right. If you say, oh, it's such a tragedy that the Civil War happened, and you, you know, it would be better if there was emancipation without a war, but it just wouldn't have happened. Right. It was pretty much the only outcome of the slavery debate. And I think in the end, it is better that slavery ended. (laughs) Hot take. It is good that slavery ended. 
Yeah, and that's the thing. That's the ultimate takeaway of the Civil War that this movie really has no connection to. Right. They say the word slave, which is more than some movies set during the Civil War in the Confederate South can say, which I find very fascinating. Because they do have some of the foot soldiers with Inman saying, I don't understand why we're going to war to protect rich men's slaves. Which is an argument that exists among some lower class whites in the South. Right, because it's not the normal average person working in the western mountains of North Carolina that would have exposure to slavery. Right. But even amongst those peoples, there are people who are happy to fight for the southern way of life, which I think we see during the scene at the beginning when they're all marching off to war and fighting for the southern way of life is explicitly fighting for white supremacy. Right. Uh, I'm just so tired of movies like this, honestly. Yeah. I... Glad I've seen it in some way, because I think watching the Lost Cause media helps you counter it better, in a way. And it's been long enough that I feel like I'm not really supporting the movie financially by streaming it on HBO Max or wherever it was. But I'm still just, I don't really like any Civil War movies, honestly. Lincoln is my jam. Yeah. I love Lincoln. But that's less, that's like a political movie. That's not a war movie. Yeah, that's a Congress movie. Yeah, that's just people sitting around debating. Not that I've seen it, but I've heard enough about it. Uh, Let me tell you, Lincoln rules. Yeah. Isn't Sally Fields Mary Todd Lincoln in that? Yeah, she's good in it. Yeah. That's another stacked cast movie, the way that all 21st century Spielberg dramas are. Yeah, you just, I mean, you want to be in a Spielberg drama. Right. So, speaking of, like, things that sprawl outwards, a big part of the press of Cold Mountain before it opened was the fact that it had quickly become one of the most expensive Miramax films ever. So, they're coming off of this, like, high point in the 90s where they're winning Oscars for stuff like The English Patient and Shakespeare in Love, which famously beat out Saving Private Ryan. And with that, their prestige grows and they start pushing for bigger and bigger projects. When Cold Mountain came out, it was the second most expensive Miramax movie ever behind Gangs of New York, which was famously expensive. So originally, United Artists, which was owned by MGM at the time, bought the book when it came out. It was supposed to be like a $40 million historical drama, but the budget kept growing, especially because Tom Cruise wanted to star in it. And at the point that some of those negotiations were taking place, it was like shortly before he and Nicole Kidman got divorced. So there was noise about like, well, maybe like Cruise and Kidman will star in it together. But MGM refused to pay his $20 million salary on a movie they were trying to make for 40 That's fair. They also offered him a third of the box office in exchange for no money up front, which is bananas. Yeah. I mean, it would have been a good deal for him. Yeah. Uh, he said no. In part, he apparently was not thrilled by the way Harvey Weinstein treated him in negotiations, which feels believable. Yeah, that sounds very plausible. So the budget kept going up. It eventually wound up costing about $90 million, but they moved the production from the U.S. to Romania. So it's almost entirely shot in, like, Transylvania to save money, and they got a, like, $10 million tax credit from the European Union. Then three weeks before shooting started, United Artists was like, nah, this movie's too expensive. We're pulling out, which left Miramax as the only financers, which then hugely pissed off Michael Eisner, who was the head of Disney, which owned Miramax at the time. And Eisner and Weinstein had been fighting a bunch. So by the time the movie comes out, the big thing in the press is like, this thing costs a lot of money. Like, have Miramax and Weinstein bitten off more than they can chew. 
And it, like, makes money. It makes $96 million domestic, another $77 million internationally. But all told, that means it, like, just kind of barely breaks even when they factor in the expense of the movie and the marketing and stuff like that. So it doesn't make a bunch of money. Like I said, it doesn't get that Best Picture nomination. Zellweger wins for Supporting Actress. So this is, like, a year after Chicago. She wins her Oscar. And they get nominations for Best Actor, Cinematography, Editing, Score, and two nominations for Original Song. But it's 2003, so they lose most of those to The Return of the King. As with most every other movie that year. Right. I think in the year of The Return of the King, the actress categories are your best shot at winning. Because you don't have that many in Return of the King. Yeah. I think the true sign that Cold Mountain failed to connect is the fact that it also did not win a single award from the AARP movies for grown-ups. Wow. Because that felt like the awards show this movie was made for. That... That's quite a snub. They didn't even get nominated for picture. I was like, what the heck? I watched this movie and I did think that it didn't really look like Western North Carolina. So I'm not surprised that it was filmed elsewhere. Yeah. Part of the issue they said was they were having a hard time finding wide landscapes where you couldn't see like telephone poles and stuff like that. And they didn't want to digitally remove them. (laughs) That is fair. It is an electrified region. The big... The reason this movie was, like, actually really influential was not because it, like, connected hugely with anybody, but because its editor, Walter Murch, edited the movie on Final Cut Pro. And this is the first major film to be edited using, like, easily available commercial software instead of much more expensive industry stuff. That's pretty cool. Isn't yeah. that a pretty standard software now, even in the big studios? Yeah, it's pretty widely used now, but this was really a breakthrough for that. 2003. I'm trying to remember what a Mac would have looked like back then. Well, is some people still... would still have their iMacs with the colored Yeah, gels. I was going to say, is it still that bright orange plastic? Not always orange. Sometimes they were blue or pink, you know? You could get your different colors. What an era for design. Uh, bring back clear plastic bubbles just on random things. See, the problem is... That's a design very specifically for a desktop computer. Yeah, but I'm talking, I want to see the inside of my toaster through a brightly colored translucent plastic bubble. One year for Christmas, my sister got a like build your own phone thing where you like wired it and put it together and it was transparent blue. That sounds really fun. It seemed cool. I did not build the phone. I loved all those do it yourself things. Like... My grandmother bought me a excavate-your-own-dinosaur toy one year, which was very enjoyable. Excellent. It came with little chisels and a brush, and you would, like, chisel away the dirt and brush it, and you'd be like, ooh, what dinosaur? And they didn't tell you what dinosaur skeleton would be inside. That is cool. I think I got a Triceratops. Another classic Fiona project, because those are the ones I'm talking about, was one where she got a kit that was a, like, put together your own mummy situation where there, you like there was a mold so you made a like plaster mummy and then it had a sarcophagus that you painted and you were supposed to like dress the mummy too she like halfway did it then years later we were clearing out stuff in my parents house and we found this sarcophagus with a plaster mummy inside and so for the last like five years it has just been making the rounds as people keep gifting it to each other I think that would be really fun, but only if you get to remove all the organs first and put them like in pull canopic. pull the through the nose? Yeah, put it in canopic jars. Yeah, I don't think there were organs involved. Ugh, what a waste. Quick round of operation before <laughs> before wrapping it in 
bandages. I like the idea that it is the Operation Dude who's being mummified. Like, he's got the red nose. <laughs> What's his name? Like, Sick Sam. Does he have a name? Yeah. Uh, according to Wikipedia, his name is Cavity Sam. Cavity Sam. Yeah. Because he's got a bunch of cavities in his body. Mm-hmm. I haven't played Operation in so long. How has Operation not been optioned for a movie? <laughs> Like, that feels like one that should happen. Uh, what would it be? It's probably a thriller. Like, Cavity Sam is is under, and maybe he's, like, eating some weird stuff, and they have to slice him open and get it out. Is it just Saw? No, because for some reason, it's like, take your child to work day. Maybe it's a comedy. And so kids are doing the operation and pulling stuff out of him. That sounds like a horror film. <laughs> Ugh. This is one of your worst ideas, Will. Maybe Cavity Sam is dead. So it's an autopsy movie. It's an autopsy movie. Yeah, okay, okay. So it's not set at a hospital at all. Cavity Sam is dead. He has eaten, like, clues to buried treasure. It's like an escape room. So they have to dig out this stuff. Kids have to scoop through a corpse of an adult human man. Yeah. In the hunt for clues leading to a buried treasure. That's my pitch. Has he sewn them into other parts of his body? Because otherwise it will just all be in the stomach. I think the people who killed him did that. Horrifying. Now the question is, why did the people who killed him Leave put all the clues the into his body? Maybe it's a serial killer movie. No, I think that they were hired by another person and they're employer told them to do this figuring that like nobody would ever figure this out so that way there's not like a paper trail of like here's where the treasure is but i the employer will be able to figure it out but the kids beat him to the corpse with the clues in it i think a serial killer movie where they have to find clues like adam's apple in the other parts of the game in bodies left around the city could work yeah that could also work hasbro call us we got some pitches (laughs) let's take this classic child's game and turn it into a haunting serial killer thriller a shockingly violent film anyway should we start talking about the romance of cold mountain yeah we might as well there's not a ton to dive into here they're separated from most of the movie it's very much like with our oh brother episode right so every week we break down the plot of the film into a romantic plot excuse me into five points to help guide the conversation. So this week, point one is the meeting for the first time of Ada and Jude Law's character's name is... Inman. Inman. It's his last name. He's like W.P. Inman. Right. Good morning. I'm Ada Monroe. Inman. Inman. W.P. Inman. W.P. Inman. Repeating the thing doesn't improve it. People call me in. So Ada has just moved to town with her father, Donald Sutherland, who's a preacher. Right. They used to live in Charleston, but his doctor told him to move to the mountains because the mountain air would be better for his obviously bad health because when we meet him, he's coughing a bunch. Right. So you know what that means. He will die. He's doomed. I think I wrote in my notes, this man is coughing too much to live. (laughs) So she's new in town, and she meets Sarah, who convinces her to go bring iced tea to the men building her father's church. And I think it's iced tea. Something like that. Nicole Kidman's a cutie in this movie. She's got great hats. Right. 
That said, horrifying thing about Nicole Kidman in this movie, she was told to lose as much weight as possible. Ew. And went on a hard-boiled eggs-only diet. Well, I'm glad she's alive. Yeah. So she brings tea over, and all the men are excited, except Inman is kind of a jerk to her. He's very aloof. He's very he's very aloof. And Sarah has asked Ada to try and convince Inman to come do some work on her farm. I think, like, plowing the field or something. Yeah. This is, uh, Sarah is the Natalie Portman character. This is Sally. Oh, Sally. Excuse played me. by Kathy Baker, who's basically like, you are so attractive and so much more attractive than anyone else who's ever been in this town that if you just kind of hint towards it, any man will help me out. And Kevin's like, all right, cool. Yeah, she makes it work for her. And this brings us to point two, where Inman has gruffly accepted to help out on Sar- Sally's farm. I can clear a field. Was there something in particular you wished to say to me? Not that comes to me. Because even though he's kind of aloof and like barely spoke to her, like barely gave her his name. He is interested. Oh yeah. So they talk for a bit and there's some budding romance between them. I think the big thing that goes on as far as their relationship building is when the church is finished construction. Donald Sutherland throws a party where he invites everybody in town over to his house and Ada takes a tray of lemonade or tea or outside again because Inman has not come into the party. He's hanging out on the porch. Right. Because he's a brooding man. His explanation is that he is soaking wet, which he is because it's pouring rain. Right. But wouldn't everyone else be wet too? One would think. So she takes out this tray and uses it as an excuse to talk to him about like, what's your deal, you hot brooding man? And so they chat for a while, and then I think we're already being moved to point three. Part of what's going on is that the movie is cutting back and forth between two timelines, where at the beginning of the movie, we have Jude Law getting injured at the crater, and then we're periodically jumping back to the beginning of their relationship. And there's a lot of Nicole Kidman voiceover in this movie. Right. There is a lot of voiceover. So she is writing letters to send to Inman. Yeah, it does drop off after, like, the first hour. Yeah. Right around the time Ruby Tuesday shows up, because that means she now has someone to talk to. It kind of comes back towards the end. Yeah, it does. And so, point three, we see the start of the war, the drafting of all the men in town. I found you this book to take with you. William Bartram. They tell me it's good. I think he writes about these parts, the author, so... Well, no, they're not drafted, they enlist. Okay, yes, that's what I mean. The enlistment of the men in town. Ada is nervous that he's going to leave, so she goes to try and see Inman, and then he opens the door (gasps) without a shirt on. Yeah, she is nervous about him going off to the war. He very much seems not to be a true believer, but because... Pretty much all the other young men in town are enlisting. He feels like he has to. Right. Or else he'd be considered a, a coward. coward. The word comes in while they're at church that not just the vote to secede has taken place, but the war has begun. And so they all march out excitedly to enlist in the army. And she clearly is not happy with this. Right. And then they kiss. Yeah. Right. So like you said, she goes to see him on the day that they're all mustering out, sees him kind of naked. And they have this heck of a kiss. Yeah. He's, like, swinging her down, like... There's a dip. It's a very aggressive, in a good way, kiss. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of passion in it. 
It rules. And it needs to because the movie is basically asking you to be like, that kiss is going to carry them from spring of 1861 to December of 1864. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of movie that happens as Inman has deserted and is trying to make his way from Virginia back to Cold Mountain. Right. And very specifically, he's like, I no longer believe in this war. I think we're probably going to lose it. I just want to get home and be with Ada. Right. There's a lot of business in the movie, too, about, like, the punishment for deserters or for sheltering deserters. Ray Winstone plays the head of the home guard in Cold Mountain, and he's, like, going around tracking people down. He murders Sally's sons and her husband. Yeah, there's an unfortunate evil albino, which is just unnecessary. Yeah. What a weird trope. (laughs) Look, he's got the confidence of youth on his side. Why isn't he fighting in the war? I think I missed that. I don't know. I honestly, during when he has the showdown with Jude Law, and he's like, only one of us is going to make it out, and you know what I've got on my side? And he goes, the confidence of youth. I was really sure he was going to be like, the law, because he did, and because Jude Law's not that old. Right. It was a weird moment. Anyway, point four, there's been about a solid two hours of movie, and we get to the reunion. Hey! It's hard to imagine a wedding. I think even my father would recognize that. Ada, I want to marry you. If you have. So, Ruby and Ada have sheltered Ruby's father and two of his other deserter friends. And Ray Winstone has been, like, trying to catch them. And so Ada's out in the woods with a shotgun, or trying to hunt food while they're hiding. Because now she's a big girl who knows how to use a gun. And a man comes walking up out of the snow and Ada's just like, go away. I'm not afraid to use this. I'm gonna murder you if you don't walk away. Right. Because like Brendan Gleeson is barely hanging on for life and they want to make sure he doesn't get caught. Right. So Inman recognizes her first and continues walking and calls out. And then she recognizes him and they're reunited and they have a kiss. They have a kiss and then they have... A kind of weird sex scene. Yeah, they have some lovey-dovey moments, and then Ruby's like, "Uh, you people suck. I'm going They're to like sleep in, in the, the middle barn. of the night, talking out by the fire, like, uh, yes, like, I've loved you all these years, I've come back to you. And finally, Ruby Tuesday is like, I cannot sleep. But it's really clear that she's also being like, you guys can go in the bed. <laughs> right. So they go in, they have kind of a weird sex scene. Yeah, so they decide to get married. In spirit, essentially. So they basically announce that they are, for all intents and purposes, married and have sex. It was really weirdly framed by the dress. It's it's all very strange. There's a lot of, like, not quite kissing each other, like, anywhere. There's a lot of, like, mouths Open near mouth different rubbing. parts of each other's bodies. Yeah. That weird thing that happens in movies that I can't imagine any human has done. It's like, under no circumstances should lips touch skin, but they should get really close to each other. Right. Just feel the hot breath. And then, like, the next day, Ray Winstone's guys catch them and are trying to kill Brennan Gleason and Jude Law. There's a big shootout. Ray Winstone's crew is killed, but so too is Inman. So, Ada Nicole Kidman had her night of passion, in which she was apparently impregnated. Yeah, because, like, six years later, she has a daughter. But... Inman has died just after returning to her. Right. As basically he had to. Uh, And so that is the end of the Ada and Inman story. 
For point five, I want to dig into Ruby Tuesday in Georgia. Ruby Tuesday, who is basically like Southern Mary Poppins. Like, Kidman is having a rough time, and one day, Renee Zellweger just walks up and, in a very no-nonsense way, is like, we're going to clean this house and get a farm going, and you're going to participate. Yeah, she's no-nonsense. She knows how to farm. Sally asked her to go help, and so they live together, and they're making the farm actually work. Yeah, the issue is that after the death of Donald Sutherland, Nicole Kidman, having been raised as... A A city gal. Yeah, like a society woman. She doesn't know how to run a farm. City folk just don't get it. So she needs Zellweger to come and teach her how to do it. Right. And then they they have a bond. They grow to love each other after some tumult at first. And then Ruby Tuesday's father shows up, who is a fiddler in a band. And that's actually Brendan Gleeson playing. He plays violin. Really? Yeah. That's fun. And his band is Jack White and the brother from My Name is Earl. His name is Ethan Suple. Ethan Suple. And so... It might be Supley. They're hanging out, and uh, Ruby Tuesday is being extra mean to Jack White, who is playing a man named Georgia. That's uh, where he's from. But then after, <laughs> goes up to Ada and is just like, oh, what kind of name is Georgia? That's ridiculous. And she's being overly mean, so of course... Nicole Can you Kidman's believe like, this guy? He's so gross. Right. So basically from that moment, you know that they are going to fall in love. And then and they fall in, the in love. Scene, in the little epilogue scene, they are clearly married with children. Right. So everyone except for Inman lives happily ever after. Yay! All right, Will. So after all of Cold Mountain, do you find the romances believable? I mean, as far as 19th century romance goes, it's not unbelievable. I mean, it's not like Inman is meeting other women. Right. So I kind of understand why he would be attached to the last woman he had feelings for. Right, and you get the sense that on some level she might have become an abstraction to him. He's got this photograph that she had taken and gave him. But she becomes representative of not being at war. Right, and I guess it was a great kiss because for some... I'm like, yeah, I guess there's no young men in the town either. That's the thing. There's no young men in the town. There's, like, Ray Winstone who's horning in on her, but you don't want to be married to him. Right. So, basically, I kind of believe it because neither of them have other options, so I can easily imagine them just romanticizing and latching on to the other. Yeah. Honestly, what's most surprising to me is that they didn't get a rush marriage before he went to war. Right. Well, I mean, it sounds like he left day of, and the town's preacher was dead because it was her father. He died during the war. Oh, right, he did. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's believable. It's a little rushed, and I wish I they had like... spent more time together. Yeah, but, like, I'm maybe inclined to give this a 9. Yeah, I was leaning toward... I don't think it's a 10, but I feel like it's a 9. Especially when you account for the fact that it's a period romance where, frankly, marriages would not necessarily be based on a lot of interaction. Right. I think it makes quite a bit of sense. Do you think that Inman or Ada is dateable? So, Inman is... A Confederate soldier, which is kind of a problem for me. And Ada is a Confederate sympathizer, which is also a problem. Right. That's the issue. So. If you were to remove them from that context, which I don't think you should, I would say Ada is eminently more dateable than Inman. Right. 
who is because a big old meanie for the most and part. And then is like kind of a grump. He's not that fun to be around. Even before he's like gone off to war and clearly developed trauma. Ada is like a pretty nice person. She's very friendly. So I think she definitely is the more dateable of the two. But again, neither of them are dateable. <laughs> right. And they will not stay together because Inman is, he dead. is dead. If you did have to choose one person in this movie to date, who would you pick? That is a great question. I haven't really thought about it. Have you thought about this one? No, I'm trying to think now. And there's like very few options because it is set in the Confederate South. Right. Like Donald Sutherland seems perfectly nice. Yeah, but I think he owns slaves. He at least possibly did. Because someone says, like, Ada had to sell the slaves. I mean, I believe you. I don't. I didn't catch that, but I believe you, and that's why I wasn't going to go with or, that. I guess, actually, I think they say she freed the slaves. But again. <laughs> no good. I don't know. It's not a movie full of good people. No. Maybe Bones. She's a nurse. <laughs> Nurses <laughs> yeah. were helping everyone on, back then. She could be a union nurse, for all we know. She wasn't. He was definitely in... A southern hospital. I know. The only people not actively fighting to maintain slavery in this movie are evil men. <laughs> right. Your best one is like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I don't really want to date in this movie either. Because he's an attempted murderer. Yeah, he's no good. The other people they meet, Maybe like the half of them are girl. just like working to entrap oh, deserters. The old hermit woman in the forest. Oh, yeah. The witch. The, yeah. Who kills a goat. There are, like, multiple people in this movie giving off strong witch vibes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's the Odyssey element. Like, she's Calypso or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with the fairy girl. I think I'd date the witch. The old witch. Yeah, that's fair. Last question, Mark. Many of the films we've discussed on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. Do you think Cold Mountain should be adapted into a musical? No. One, I don't think we need any more Confederate-leading media as I've made clear, and even removing that, this movie does not need anything added to it. So, the thing is, in 2015, the Santa Fe Opera debuted the opera adaptation of Cold Mountain. Now, it's adapted from the novel, but I think it's close enough that we should count it. Oh, God. No, thank you. Zero interest in watching that. It was a co-commission between the Santa Fe Opera, Opera Philadelphia, and the Minnesota Opera. Oh. All right. Well, I think... Cold Mountain, we have scaled the peak and we're heading back down. (laughs) What a segue. Uh, Next week, we are going to be doing something that we haven't done in a long time, which is our annual Oscars extravaganza. (laughs) We will see how it goes. Yeah, we always go through the romances of the Best Picture nominees and rate each of them on our 10-point scale. And sometimes we award some other... Special trophies as well. I think I have currently seen about zero of the likely nominees. Well, I will be in touch with you about how you can watch some of those before we record. We'll post some stuff on our social media as well. Uh, Unless Barb and Star is rightfully nominated for Best Picture. What's wild is that they are not on the shortlist for original song. So as we're recording, the nominations have not come out. But Barb and Star will not get original song nominations criminal yeah jail (laughs) oh boy uh i have a lot of work to do but luckily we are recording a month plus in advance yeah as we said the oscar nominations are still not out 
But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love to Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at Love to Love Pod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts. It helps us grow our audience and find new people to teach about love. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Cold Mountain? Get so good at kissing that someone can't stop thinking about you for four years while you're apart. That's what I was going to say. Okay, so instead, I will just say that if you want to flirt with someone, bring them a drink. (laughs) Well, it's a classic. (laughs) There you go. Until next time, I'm Gay. And I'm a Ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Then I heard a sweet voice from the top of this mountain saying, child, put your hand in mine. I started climbing slowly, watch your step at the edges.